again. <laughs> No, that it, it, it's no, you know, hot toddy. That's not the mm -hmm. way to fix a scratchy throat. You don't apply lotion, cocoa butter. <laughs> Thanks for your uh, expertise. I mean, I, I try. You know, I, <laughs> most of my research is done on WMD. Not all of it's great. You know, it's like are trusting you, Wikipedia. Are you dying in every instance? Yeah, and, and, and my research has showed that cocoa butter fixes that. If you apply lotion, you're good to go. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, skin cancer, cocoa butter. Ask anybody in the medical community. <laughs> They'll disagree. Well, they're quacks, okay? <laughs> they're not the real deal, okay? Come to me for your science. They're uh, drug dealers in white lab coats. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. <sighs> Welcome to the Nightmare Box. Presenting Mistakes Were Made. My name's Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across from the beautiful, the effervescent, the black lung, Kristen Pennington. I do apologize in advance for the probable large amount of coughing yeah, I'm going to do in this episode. You've been feeling like shit for like a week. So it's going to be a blast. Brett's going to do most of the steering on this one. And yeah. uh, I'm going to try not to die yeah. on air. If I had a nickname for, like, podcasting, I'd be the drunk driver. So <laughs> like Brett's in charge of where this goes. Brett is also going to get a little buzzy by the end of the show. Start screaming about pedophiles in the government. All good things. I mean, it happens. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Um, but what I wanted to talk about today um, is this concept that I heard about for the first time. You know, oddly enough, um, my senior year of college, I almost said high school, um, when I was in Dr. Arroyo's class, go read his books. He's fucking brilliant. Fred Arroyo. Um, where he, he tried to explain this concept of reading like a writer. And I know that they've got a book called Reading Like a Writer, and you can go read that book. I've not read that book. That's not how he taught the course. Probably used it, you know, as a blueprint for what he wanted to teach. But um, he had this concept that if you wanted to be um, a good writer, you had to learn how to like deconstruct other stories and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was rolling that around in my head the other day because I've been reading like a madman since we got to Montana because it's quiet as fuck out here and <laughs> there's nowhere to go. So, <laughs> um, stepped inside your own head. I stepped inside my own head. And I had a few questions for you concerning what it's like to watch a film like as a filmmaker. So I kind of wanted to bounce around that topic today. If that's all right with you. No. It's unacceptable. <laughs> no? Well, fine. Fuck it. I know I brought all these books, and I was going to do nice readings, but why would I ever do that? Because Kristen doesn't like my fucking ideas. No, you almost spilled your beer. <laughs> that would have infuriated me. Right? <laughs> um, ironically, uh, I think my first year of, like, actual, the actual, <laughs> of the actual like, film program, you can't. You can't talk on top of me today. I'm puny today. <laughs> so I'm not going to sit here and repeat myself today. I feel like crap. Okay, um, Jesus. <laughs> um, like my first year of like the actual film program after I got past my gen eds, that was actually a class that I had to take. I can't remember what they called it, but it was basically like a film studies yeah. class where we would watch movies and like the whole point was you had to like analyze them and then we would have class discussions about them. And I 
didn't particularly enjoy that class. Like, mm-hmm. it did teach me some things for sure, but, like, it felt like homework assignments, yeah. basically. Like, it wasn't fun. It was like, oh, I've got to go watch this movie and try to come up with something to say in class. And our professor, like, doesn't think I didn't watch the movie. And then he would give us these little quizzes. And they mm-hmm. were usually, if you watch the movie, super easy to pass. But um, Is that the one where you watched Birth of a Nation? Yes. And fell in love with it? Uh, that was not... <laughs> I did have to watch Birth of a Nation. I did not fall in love with it. The original, not the not the remake. Yeah. Um, Clan I, movie. I actually didn't, at the time, really enjoy that class for whatever reason. And I don't feel like until more recently that I have really watched movies from like an analytical point of view. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like for me it's always just been like, oh, I'm watching a movie, I'm sitting down, I'm enjoying this. And... Um, more recently since we've started working on our projects like I've kind of naturally started to notice things because I feel like they're things that I'm thinking about whenever I'm shooting my own stuff so it's kind of like that's fun then I didn't started to naturally like happen where it was like oh like I'm noticing this stuff more and like why it matters more and um yeah like back when I had to do it for school I was kind of like do I have to (laughs) yeah I didn't realize that it was so recent I just figured that was how you always watched them no, not really. No? I, uh, I mean, like, I've, I've always really enjoyed, like, deep emotional scenes and, yeah. like, characters that are, like, you know, have these pivotal turning points. And, like, I've always connected with, like, those moments in the movie. Mm-hmm. But it's not, like, as a whole, I've been sitting back, like, what's this character thinking? And what's this character doing? Yeah. And why does this scene matter? It was just, like, oh, I felt sad, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then something about, like, diving into this, you know, these career paths, I guess, force you to... Not that you lose the magic of it, but you have to look at the magic in a different way. Yeah. Like, why did that particular angle get used? Why did they go with the wide shot instead of the close-up? Yeah, and I think that's part of it for me, because, like, like I said, I've been, um, you know, since we've started, like, shooting stuff and everything, like, having to think about these things yeah. more, and, like, having to think about the effect, like, the lighting or the color, or the, you know, angles, the shot setups and stuff will have, um... So whenever I sit down to watch a movie now, it is kind of like trying to get inside the head of the filmmaker. Like, Mm -hmm. they chose this for a reason, and why did they choose this? Or when I'm watching something and it makes me feel a certain way or think about a certain thing, it's Mm -hmm. like, well, what did they do to get me there? Yeah. So yeah, it has been kind of a natural transition to... I'm doing this. What did they do? Yeah, I noticed that a lot when we were watching Joker, which, you know, talk of the town. Tonight's the Oscars as of this recording, and I hear that thing's up for a bunch of shit, so I hope it wins at least one because it's fantastic, and eventually we're going to do a full film study on it. Uh, But we paused that movie a shitload and, like, replayed scenes, and we're like, how the fuck? (laughs) You know? (laughs) What choice was that? Yeah. And it is definitely. for sure one of the bigger more recent ones that i on every level like the color was like very intentional Mm -hmm. and very pretty the shot styles like the script everything like so fantastically done it was kind of like yeah like every scene pausing to be like what did they do there it was like a master class you know it's like reading moby dick you're like (laughs) oh my fucking god um But one of the big things, and this might be, you know, a little bit all over the place because we haven't looked at each other's notes to build this episode. We just kind of came with a bunch of ideas. I also feel crummy, so Brett's having to keep the energy. (laughs) I I do that a lot. Um, But yeah, it it makes you think, how would I write or how would I shoot this particular scene? 
So you look for opportunities like that where I go back to the same like fucking 15 things. But to me, the perfect scene, like if I had to pick one that stands out is forever no country's coin, the coin toss scene. I think it's impeccable. So much tension in such a small amount of time. It reveals so much about Chigurh and you know, how would you shoot it, you know? What elements do you miss? Like the nooses behind the clerk. Like he's got those belts or whatever those are. Yeah. The oil wrench, maybe, mm. that are hanging up in the window. But it looks like a line of hangman nooses. Yeah, and like to the, which you've brought that up before, like the candy wrapper unfolding. Yeah. Like it's a general practice not to use close-ups on things unless they're important Mm -hmm. you know the close-up is pulling the viewer's attention to whatever that specific thing is and that seems like such a like innocuous thing like a candy wrapper he sat down just on the counter but it's slowly like unraveling Mm -hmm. and like the unraveling is the perfect word for it (laughs) (laughs) like the loudness of the crinkling of it is like the only sound in the whole room so Mm -hmm. it's like such a weird thing to put focus on but at the same time it makes sense in the scene so it is an interesting study in when to pull in and when to pull back out again. And yeah. I did notice, because we recently rewatched just that one scene, um, which I'm sure a lot of movies do this, but mm-hmm. it is interesting that they both stay on kind of mid-shots and then immediately when they switch one of the characters into a close-up, the other goes into a close-up. So it's almost like they're in this weird standoff. And then when they back back down to a mid-shot, the other character's shot goes back down to a mid-shot. So like they You don't get like a dominant figure. Yeah, they structure it like it is this kind of like standoff of who's going to win. So it is an interesting study in like building tension without any action actually. I love that scene, but I love that story. I love that book. If you've not read No Country for Old Men and you've Mm -hmm. only seen the movie, you're doing yourself a disservice. We've talked about it on here. I'm going to bring up Cormac McCarthy again later, but go read No Country. It's fucking awesome. Um, Speaking of building tension though, um, because that's something I've been trying to think about more myself because I'm not uh, a writer and so... When we watch movies, I'm usually watching it from, you know, a filmmaker's standpoint. Standpoint. <laughs> standpoint. I was trying to say point of view, but I said stand to standpoint of view. Um, <laughs> um, so usually I, I'm thinking about, like, the shot setup or the color or the lights yeah. or whatever. But, um, you know, since you and I have a lot of discussions about the way this stuff is done, like, I have been thinking a bit more about, like, the actual writing part and... Um, we recently watched Dark Crimes, which uh, I like. <clears throat> um, is gonna be our two star episode. Maybe, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if there's enough there to talk about, so that might change. But yeah, it's potentially gonna yeah. be our uh, two star episode. It's one big pretty shot. <laughs> but um, it is an exercise in why you do not write a movie on oxycontin for sure. <laughs> it, it is a, a movie which it reminded me a lot of the TV series Mindhunter as well. It yeah. is a movie where not a lot of actual action ever mm-hmm. really happens, but there's still a lot of moments. It's a very slow build. Like Mindhunter is a bit, well, definitely more successful yeah. at it, but um, it's a bit of a slow build, but when there is tension, it's pretty much all in just the conversation. Yeah. And Mindhunter is a like fantastic example of like 
it's about a bunch of serial killers mm-hmm. and deconstructing these serial killers. Like the first time he meets Ed Kemper, you're like, Kemper might kill him. Yeah, and you don't, <laughs> it's not really focused on the actual crimes. You don't yeah. ever, like, see the, or from what we've watched anyway, we haven't watched the, is the latest the, the, season out already? Yeah, we haven't watched it yeah, yet. We haven't that's watched... the one that's got Charles Manson, so I have no idea how we've not yeah, watched it. Yeah, we haven't watched that one yet, unfortunately, so I don't know what they do with that one, but it is a series where they don't really show, like, the violence or the killings mm-hmm. or anything like that. And, like, all of the tension is in the conversations he's having with the killers and the conversations yeah. he's having with... Very his, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, and his yeah. partners and, like, his girlfriend and stuff. And, like, all the tension just unraveling between all these relationships. Yeah. So it is um, another film much like that scene in Old... Or another series much like that scene in Old Country where there's a lot of tension just in the way it's shot and the mm-hmm. way the, like... Uh, characters are like portraying themselves and the you know conversations and stuff so it is kind of a cool study and like how you don't have to have all these crazy explosions and this action going yeah. on to make someone feel like tense so, kudos to them <laughs> um i thought i had a note on tension i don't really have a note on tension um as far as reading's concerned with things like that, though, I wish I'd written or made a selection for a tension thing. Um, I think it's important to, like, read with a pen and take notes of all those things. So you're taking note of, like, the tension and the sentence structure, any emphasized words. Like, if there's a word in italics, there's a reason for that. If you're reading Cormac McCarthy, there's a reason why he's finally used a comma in a mm-hmm. sentence. you got to, like, breathe around that sentence perspective point of view etc like those choices that are made to create those scenes um i like to take a pen and i like to go through and like highlight those types of things for me or like block off whole scenes and sections and be like this was when you find a whole page that you like you just put a star at the top i put a star at the top of the page (laughs) but uh, one of my examples that i have here um deals with transitions more than tension. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to completely oh, jump off attention. I just, I, I have a couple of notes and <laughs> I forgot. Uh, I don't know why I didn't do that. That was dumb of me. Um, but I've been reading The Crossing by Cormac McCarthy. It's fucking incredible. I've, oh, I'm less than 50 pages from the end of it. I've flown through this thing. It's not a light read. It clocks in at like 420 some odd pages. Um, so it's not like a pick up and finish in the afternoon and it deals with a lot of shit, but the beginning of the book focuses around this 16 year old boy. He traps a wolf and has to take the wolf or he doesn't have to, he can't kill the wolf for moral reasons. He, he, He respects it too much and instead tries to take it back to Mexico to release it in the mountains where all the other wolves are. Um, but before the wolf and the boy meet, you get two different views. And for a brief moment at the beginning of the novel, this is page 26, um, you get a couple of pages of the wolf's perspective of how the wolf sees the world. At the same time, the son is with his father setting out traps to catch the wolf. So you've, you've got these... Um, what do you call it? Like this conflict, this this mini conflict that's going on. And Cormac chooses to open up one of the chapter areas, sections, whatever you call them, because they're not broken up like chapters, um, from the wolf's perspective. And in this two-paragraph thing, in one sentence, and see if you can catch it, team, 
he switches perspective and it it's seamless <clears throat> by evening she'd found all eight of the sets and she was back at the gap of the mountain again where she circled the trap whining then she began to dig she dug a hole alongside the trap until the caving dirt fell away to reveal the trap's jaw she stood looking at it she dug again when she left and set the trap when she left the set God damn it, Cormac. When she left the set, the trap was sitting naked on the ground with only a handful of dirt over the waxed paper covering the pan, and when the boy and his father rode through the gap the following morning, that was what they saw. His father stood down from the horse onto the calf hide and surveyed the set while the boy sat watching. He remade the set and rose and shook his head doubtfully. They rode the rest of the line, and when they returned the following morning... The first set was uncovered again, and so were four more. They took up three of the sets and used the traps to make blind sets in the trail. So that entire thing, she dug again. When she left the set, the trap was sitting naked on the ground, with only a handful of dirt over the waxed paper covering the pan. And then the transition happens in the middle of that sentence. And when the boy and his father rode through the gap the following morning, that was what they found. He doesn't break the paragraph. He doesn't break that into two sentences. He writes this long sentence after a bunch of short sentences, which is my favorite thing, is like the pacing elements. Um, and then in the middle of the <laughs> sentence, he switches the camera yeah. from like looking at the trap. And then you can almost imagine like the same shot, except when you look back up from the trap, you're seeing the boy and the father as opposed to the wolf. Yeah. And when you read it to me, it was like, it is a very seamless transition. Like, I didn't even notice it the first time. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and from the the same book, just while I've got it in my hand here, um, I've got a small section. It's on page 344, if anybody has the book and wants to follow along. Uh, I also like to take notes of strong descriptions that are going on. And Cormac McCarthy, on top of all the other things I compliment the man for, is a king of describing something in a way that I've never read before. So I'll take notes of those, and then I try to look at innocuous things and, 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 and find my own way around like how I would describe them. So he's discussing, um, he's hanging out with like his father's friend, an older gentleman, a uh, cowboy type guy who's you know just kind of sits on his rocker now. And there's all these old pictures that are on the wall and the old guys going through, you know, this is, uh, you know, old Joey so-and-so and this is, you know, Rocker John or whatever. Um, so he's discussing, like, all these pictures he's seeing. The people on horseback, men sitting among cardboard cactus in a photographer's studio in suits and ties with the legs of their breeches stogged into their boot tops and rifles standing upright before them, the antique dresses of the women, the wary or haunted cast in their eye, like people photographed at gunpoint. I like that. Motherfucking Cormac McCarthy. Like, so he took a standard picture. You could go, you know, it's sepia and fucking... It's, you know, roasted at the edge or some shit like that. And he took all of those details and he goes, nope, that's hack, that's hack, that's hack. Who do these people look like? They look like they're at gunpoint. They don't look like they're smiling for a camera because they've got to stand there for, you know, fucking four hours to get a picture taken. So they all just look like, oh, my God, 
in the middle of a hostage situation. And that description builds the overall tone of that scene and of those photographs, and it sticks with you. So, Brett's first piece of reading like a writer. Carry a pen <laughs> and make your notes. Do, do you find it more difficult when you're writing to, um, like, because I've always wondered that, I guess, like in film, when you're showing a location, you don't describe it at all. It's literally just the location, yeah. you know, and like you can do little cutaways or whatever and kind of show the little bits that you want to mm -hmm. show, but like I don't have to take time to describe the room that we're in because you can see the room that we're in. So do you find that more difficult when you're writing, like trying to set the scene without like, like you like to mention, Tolkien drags on and on? <laughs> um, do you find it difficult, like finding the right amount of words to set the scene without boring the reader or is that you you gotta push in like the the way that i like to think about it but it goes into my whole like theory on horror is primarily it needs to be built around trauma and so i try to write in the same way like i've got post-traumatic stress disorder like I've, I've got problems and when i think about things you don't see them in their full aspect ratio like if that makes sense like if i'm trying to remember this conversation we're having right now of course i'm going to remember you sitting there um i might remember that box sitting over in the corner because it's like in front of the television but i'm not going to remember like every word on the whiteboard or every time the cat moved around the room so like you're going to remember these tight glimpses yeah. and in description i've found that the um the easiest way or not the easiest <laughs> way but what works best uh, from my perspective is to capture the mood of the room using like a handful of things that are in the room, you know, like the glasses shattered and the little bits of glass are in the carpet. You don't need to know, you know, who made the rug that's on the floor. Yeah. You don't, you know, you, you might Something see glass. Yeah. yeah, you get like a thump, 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 and then glass on the floor maybe like static playing low on the television you don't need to like get the whole room you just need enough to build the ambiance of the room yeah. Which is my, my sounding really smart because that, that felt like i sounded really smart <laughs> i don't know if i actually said anything <laughs> um, relevant to the short film that we're right now, which is, uh... well how do you before we dive into that how do you do it in filmmaking like do you look for like an overall, like an angle into the room, or are you looking for like smaller things, like what's going on with the film that we're shooting right now? Um, well, I was going to talk about the sound on that one a bit oh, more, okay. but yeah. um, I like, I mean, I I will typically shoot a wide shot for safety a lot of the time, just yeah. like in case I feel like when I'm going back later and editing, I need to kind of set. Um, or like establish the location that we're in, but a lot mm -hmm. of the time I don't personally use the wides to um, establish the location so much as pull back a bit. Like yeah. in the short film that we're working on right now, um, most of it is shot in close up and then the only time we go to wides it's when it's like kind of a moment of silence and we're pulling back a little mm -hmm. bit from the way that the character feels. This, so, by the way, this fucking short that she's working on right now looks goddamn incredible 
Thank I'm you. beyond proud of your transition shots that are in this. Your wide shot that's in this is fucking unbelievable. It, it looks like it was shot with professional gear and a whole goddamn crew. Uh, the sound is all working in your favor. Um, my acting leaves much to be desired. But <laughs> I would say well written. <laughs> Pat's self on back. Oh, go ahead. Oh, um... I mean, like, I do, I do typically, like I said, tend to shoot the wide so you can kind of see the whole room just for safety in case, like, I feel like it ends up being necessary. But yeah. a lot of the time, um, whenever I'm shooting anyway, I just kind of follow, like, I guess, like, the tension in the moment. Like, if the characters are supposed to be um, anxious or uptight or mad or, you know, whatever, where you kind of want to be in there with it, like, I don't... Personally, I feel like the setting super matters a lot mm-hmm. of the time. So, um, I guess it just kind of depends on what the scene is about. Um, and it did use the wide for part of ours because, like, it, it does set up an important element of where the character's at. And also, you kind of get a moment to pull back from mm-hmm. the character and kind of breathe. Um, so, I feel like a lot of it is kind of just in, like... Like almost like it's a a song, like the like slow and yeah. then the pick back up to the you know fast part of the song. So it's like kind of establishing. I love that you think about it that way because it's how I think about the writing. <laughs> well, we've it's had like this conversation yeah, before. That there's like a melody to it. And I, I I do feel like too, which has been kind of interesting with this um, short film, like the sound a lot of the time too will kind of set the mood for you. There's mm-hmm. like a scene in this one <laughs> where you hear like the shower running and the shot isn't even of the bathroom or anything yeah. like the shots of something else entirely different but you know that there's a bathroom in the background somewhere and that's what the character is doing is taking a shower so um i do feel like that's the advantage of film which is why i'm kind of interested in how it works for writing is you don't even necessarily have to show what the thing is, if you can kind of hear it and, like, get a sense of what's going on. And, like, this film is, like, heavily focused on sound. And um, for me, like, a lot of my shorts in the past have been just kind of, like, a little bit of, like, subtle music in the background Mm -hmm. and then just whatever the literal audio was that we recorded. And with this one, since it is so heavily reliant on sound, I've been trying... Because it is purposely a quote-unquote silent <clears throat> film. Yeah. So only ambient noise, zero dialogue. And no yeah. music either. So, um, like, I, I've found myself trying to layer up and, like, make the sound, like, more hearty. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I think it's a good practice even with films that have dialogue and stuff like that. You can make the film seem more like full bodied with like a little extra layer of sound. Like I've noticed a lot of my old short films just sound kind of flat when you're watching them. Mm -hmm. And like with this one, we have like audio of like a door slamming and like there's actual audio from the scene that we shot. But then I went back and added (laughs) after grocery store run today, I got to just park on the side of some dirt road and walk in snow. (laughs) That's the job. Okay. (laughs) I am officially, what, what do we call them? A Foley artist? Yeah. I am a Foley artist. Like Chris Foley. (laughs) (laughs) Farley, not Foley. Um, But like there's a a door. Up in these credits. IMDB is going to make me look like the goddamn Renaissance. (laughs) 
he's a prop dude. He's a stunt coordinator. He's an actor. <laughs> oh, this is your first acting credit, too. This is my first time, acting maybe? credit. Mm. And I walked in snow today, so I'm officially a Farley. A Farley <laughs> artist. Um, but yeah, there's like a, a scene where the door slams, and like I recorded the audio from that, but it, it wasn't as punchy as I wanted, so I went back and added mm-hmm. like a separate sound effect of a door being slammed under the original audio yeah. layer. And like, I'd, I think I personally, I'm sure other people have felt this way too have been kind of afraid to tweak the sound too much because I am not an audio engineer. Like, sound is definitely not yeah. my forte by any means. But when you layer... Luckily, you're working with an experienced Foley artist. <laughs> when you layer, like, similar sounds that you kind of expect to hear naturally yeah. um, onto a scene, like, your brain kind of just kind of accepts that that is what that sounded like and that is what's happening. And you can kind of punch up the audio by adding a little extra layer under it. Like there's a scene two where Brett picks up a bag and we didn't have any audio from that at all. Mm-hmm. And um, I could have easily just gone and recorded my own audio, but I didn't feel like it. <laughs> so I downloaded a couple of uh, sound files of bags being picked up and just layered like two or three yeah. sounds of different bag sounds being picked up. You showed it. me how you did that yesterday. <laughs> it was fucking beautiful. And it sounds like it's actually yeah. the audio that we recorded and it's not. <laughs> So um, I think that's been kind of a cool learning experience for me on this film is like how you can bring a lot more life to each individual scene by just kind of punching up the sound a bit. And like I've been kind of like literally for every scene going back and kind of tweaking it Mm -hmm. and adding an extra layer of stuff that we didn't actually record to like the underneath of it to like yeah. and I a lot of the time I'll turn the volume down really low on it so it's a little like more subtle in the background but it just like punches up like the quality of it so when you go to hear it it's like oh like okay like when, <laughs> when do you think it's appropriate to uh focus on like the ambient noise in a the scene then as opposed to music do you have any thoughts on that um I mean I, I definitely think music helps a lot um especially like in scary movies where you're trying to up the tension or you're trying Make to get that... Make a worthless jump scare. Yeah, you're trying to get <laughs> that jump scare in. Like there's that sharp like screech of a violin yeah. or whatever, you know, out of nowhere. And you're like, oh God. <laughs> and if I'm being honest, a lot of the time in scary movies, the sudden sound is what scares mm-hmm. me, not the thing. So <laughs> like I, I won't discredit the use of it. it. It is effective most of the time. That is what scares me. But um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I think if you can kind of reserve the music for the meaningful moments where you really feel like the music is necessary, that's probably better, because I have found with this But you can't really use it as, like, filler, though, right? Like, it has to be purposeful. I think if you use it as filler, it's almost like a laugh track on a TV show. Like, I... It's a laugh track, it's a jump scare, it's not being used appropriately. I'm not saying you can't do it. I have used music as filler before. I've done shorts where there's music on the entire thing before, but... Dark Crimes, by the way, no music. I think it had, like, one or two very subtle moments, (laughs) and yeah, for the most part, no music in it whatsoever. And, like, I'm not saying you can't use it as filler. I'm not saying I've never used it as filler before, but I feel like if you focus on the actual quality of the sound even if you're doing like fully work and it's not the natural sound of the scene and you're purposely punching it up a bit that's fine like it does 
when there's music that shouldn't be there yeah. become much more obvious that there's music that shouldn't be there. You know the one scene, and it just kind of came to me, that music needed to be in the scene? American Psycho. Oh, it's yeah. It's to be square. <laughs> that whole scene. There's music there that builds along with the action, and then he's like, kills him with the axe, don't, you know get a uh, reservation at Darcy now, you motherfucker, whatever he says to him. Yeah. And then sits down in the chair and the music gets louder and it, like, fades you out into the next scene. And I haven't seen it, but um, Baby Driver is another movie that was, like, heavily praised yeah. for the uh, music track because the entire movie has music on it for the most part. And um, it's a movie that apparently was very effective about its use of it. And it's a huge, like, part of who the character is. So. Yeah. It can be done. I, I I would definitely say do it with purpose, though. Um, it, it is there. We've watched stuff before where I've been like, why is there music there? And even with the dolls, like, I, I really like the sound score on the dolls. Mm-hmm. But we did kind of get like a, why is there tense music when he's just walking in the house? That's kind of silly. <laughs> So, this um, is the bad guy. Yeah. And it does become a little obvious and a little less meaningful. Yeah. Um, when it is actually needed, if you have it when it's not needed. So it, it's one of those things where you kind of have to learn how to use it appropriately. Mm-hmm. I think like with um, this one, I'm learning how to appropriately build the sound. So it's, I think one of those things where the more you practice, the more naturally it comes. Mm-hmm. Well, like when you're watching a film, like, is there anything like in particular that you look for, like going into it? Like, are you looking for like a specific angle or like the lighting or, um, you know what I mean? I don't... Movement in the shot. And that's part of what I was talking or about. Or is it like if you're trying to learn something, you pay more attention to that thing in the immediate? And that's part of what I was talking about earlier. Like, I don't... For whatever reason, I didn't enjoy the purposeful study of mm-hmm. films when it was like I'm sitting down and I'm sitting here and planning to study this. So like for some reason I didn't. Oh no, that's no fun. Like I was reading articles and they were like, you need to watch every movie three times. And then I went to the book ones and it's like, you need to read that book five times. And I was like, I'll just read it once with a pen. <laughs> and if I want to go back to it later, then I've got my old notes. I'll put new notes in it. Yeah. I'm not fucking, you know. I'm like, I, don't... I love The Crossing. I'm not restarting that book. I need that one to sit in my head for another two three years before I pick it back up and then cry again yeah um no like I don't ever sit down when I'm watching a movie and think like I'm gonna pay attention to this or that or I'm gonna study this or what can I learn from this like for me it's a it's a generic phrase I use a lot I know on this podcast but the whole like concept no (laughs) (laughs) the whole concept of like that was a pretty shot like yeah Kristen's pretty 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 shot it seems really like a generic thing to say about a shot, but a lot of the time when we're watching something and I'm like, oh, wait a second, like, what was that? You yeah. know, like, um, first and foremost, it is just like a lot of the time the lighting and the color and the quality of the shot, but like the combination of using all of these factors that kind of help set um, the mood a lot of the time is what stands out to me initially. And then like, I kind of have that moment of like, wait, what did they do there? Mm-hmm. You know, or like what's happening here as it's happening, like with the... The Joker, for instance, um, 
like this contrast of like color that they kept using through the whole thing. Like I was just like immediately yeah. like. And we are doing <clears throat> that film study. We we have to watch that like two more times, pen and paper. Like burn a whole Sunday drinking mimosas and watching the Joker, <laughs> pausing it every ten seconds and going. <laughs> like it, it was one of those movies where it was like as soon as you noticed they were doing it. it was like you can tell they're doing it mm-hmm. on purpose and they're they're doing it with a purpose so like i don't i don't ever sit down i don't, I don't think with the intention of studying any one thing but like the cinematography the lighting the color or and like the like the depth and shot stands out to me a lot of the time like shallow depth of fill versus um why can i never remember with the counter to shallow depth of field is. We've had this conversation before. I guess deep depth of field. I think that's what yeah. we DDP. <laughs> um, like, like I always want to say like long depth of field. It's definitely deep depth of field. <laughs> <laughs> um, like a lot of the time I noticed that. And like um, we did a lot of like kind of shallow shots in this latest short. And like the rack focus where you purposely shift the viewer's yeah. point of view. Like I noticed stuff like that a lot. Because it's like I want you to look at this. Now go look at this. So, yeah. like, I noticed that kind of stuff. And, like, even when we were watching... And you can do it Halloween style, where it's like, now go look at that. Oh, while you weren't paying attention to the closest thing, Michael Myers is gone. <laughs> and even, like, we watched that um, Netflix documentary, The Pharmacist, and, like... That was so fucking good. <laughs> like, within the first five minutes, I was like, we've seen this before, but not, like, literally this. Yeah. It was like, we've seen these shots and this setup and stuff before, and, like, it reminded me... So much of Wild Wild Country, which is also a Netflix documentary. Also awesome. <laughs> and, um, like, I looked it up, and, I, like, I expected either the cinematographer, the editor, the director, producer, somebody to be the same, and it's actually not, but it, it does kind of establish that Netflix, Netflix has their own working <laughs> formula for their documentaries, because, like, as soon as it started playing, I was like, this is exactly how Wild yeah. Country was, like, shot and set up, and, like, the way they had yeah, the interview set up. Immediately engaged. Yeah. Beautiful fucking title sequence. <laughs> and the the closing shot was brilliant too Mm -hmm. but like it is one of those kind of things where you notice when it's been done right like you can immediately be like oh wait like this is that person's work we've seen this before like i know this like a signature yeah i've also got on my notes as questions (laughs) to Kristen. um when i was looking at articles earlier one of the articles said that uh for filmmakers it's important to not necessarily like follow specific uh, directors, but to note their signatures um, as you come across them. So, for example, you've got like Hitchcock's use of like voyeuristic shots where it's like you don't feel like you're supposed to be seeing what you're seeing. Yeah. Um, or you've got like Alex at the beginning of the Clockwork Orange. <laughs> no, that I'm mixing things up. You got Hitchcock's voyeurism, you got Kubrick. And his emotional close-ups that are like Private Pile in a Full Metal Jacket or Alex in A Clockwork Orange, which apparently they call the Kubrick stare, like its signature. Because hmm. And then I was like, what the fuck does that mean? And then they started listing all the things. And it's that, like, ha- like glancing at the floor, looking up over, you know, like if you were trying to look over the brim of your glasses, your head's at like a 45-degree angle, and then he heavy lights that. Um, you see kind of that sinister. that sinister look that you get when, uh, before Private Pile blows his head off in the bathroom, and Alex when they're in the uh, the milk bar. You also get it with uh, Jack Torrance in The Shining, 
where he's got that kind of fucking sunken eyeball look. Apparently all of Kubrick's films have the Kubrick hmm. stare. That's one of his signatures. And of course, Michael B- Michael Bay loves the American flag and he loves blowing <sighs> shit up. <laughs> so like how important are those elements? Like when you watch for say like a Tarantino, there's always like that trunk shot or the shot of the feet or like that like crazy stylistic dialogue. I think I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not saying any filmmaker period should find yeah. like a trick and just keep doing that trick. Like I think eventually. But do you think it's important to identify those tricks? Like Stephen King, big on child protagonist. You know. Yeah, I I I, I do think because a lot of the time with stuff like that, it's kind of a unique shot or a unique setup or you know not something you see in every film. So I think with that kind of stuff, a lot of the time it is important to notice when they're doing it um why they're doing it yeah. what mood why it's do they always the do this why does yeah. m night Shyamalan always need the he's been dead this whole time ending <laughs> <laughs> like whether or not you know it's a effective move because like the trunk shot you know that's not really a shot you see super often it is kind of an interesting angle so like whenever you're making your own work if like you have a scene where you're like, how can I kind of like make this a little more compelling for the viewer? You know, if you recognize how other filmmakers have kind of changed the game a little bit, then Scorsese always opens his movie from a scene like in the third act. Yeah. So you can like, just like they, they, they got the guy in the trunk in the Goodfellas. It's like the opening shot. I always wanted to be a gangster. And then he just starts shooting the dude in the fucking trunk. <laughs> then they go back to the beginning when he was like 10 years old. And then that scene happens right at the top of the third act. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I'd like if you recognize those kind of tricks when you're shooting your own stuff, I, I feel like you do ideally naturally think, how can I make this more interesting versus just like, oh, I'm following the, you know rules for how the shot mm-hmm. is set up and whatever so i guess it's good to recognize when somebody kind of does something that stands out a bit and whether or not it's good or bad and how you can kind of make yeah. your own shots stand out I, I don't know that i necessarily advocate for tarantino's revisionist history thing that he's on <laughs> for like the past four films like ha- having a trick <laughs> that like you constantly hitler got use. murdered sharon tate survived <laughs> I think it's different to have a style that's kind of your own versus having like a trick that you just constantly use. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily say like do that because I feel like I don't know. Like I feel like as artists, you should always kind of be pushing. You yourself. should forever be growing, but I mean it happens in everything. You know, Van Gogh has a Van Gogh signature, and uh, Eminem has a rap signature. You know. Yeah, and I mean... You listen to Led Zeppelin, you know you're listening to Led Zeppelin. (laughs) I think ideally, as you kind of find your creative voice, your work is going to start to be recognizable as, oh, that is your work. Yeah. Um, Because ideally, you're going to kind of find, like, the style that, like, suits you and stuff. You build um, from your signature. Yeah. your, Your new base is you, plus whatever you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, but I... I don't know. I don't ever have, like, which I'm still early in my career, but uh, I don't ever have, like, shots where I'm like, oh, like, I need this type of shot. I'm just like, what are we going to do in this scene to try to make this scene more interesting? So I guess, like, I'm not at a point where I think of those kinds of things, but I guess it is good to 
notice them and if they make you feel a certain way be like when you get that like creepy stare like oh like okay you know (laughs) well what i like about it and what i was thinking about with it was like everybody's got a signature you know uh you just kind of have to figure out what yours is maybe you don't maybe you're tarantino and you never realized that you used a foot film like in every single one of your movies it was never a you know like a conscious (laughs) decision or you're michael bay and you're like you're right i do blow up a lot of things like I'm not doing it because I'm Michael Bay. I'm doing it because I like blowing up things, and you guys seem to like me like blowing up things. Like when things go boom. But noticing it and other things, um, I find like on a meditative level helps me notice it in myself. You know, so like I look for signatures, um, like Cormac's complete disregard for all punctuation. I fucking love that. His level of description. Uh, Hunter Thompson's weird abstraction of the world and like he always goes back to a couple of like key figures like he hated Nixon everything that he ever wrote fuck Nixon <laughs> to the point where I'm like fuck Nixon I'm pretty sure Nixon's been dead for a good minute <laughs> um Brett Eston Ellis these bland almost like reading a brochure descriptions to describe like this wildly chaotic time that it gives it like a sociopathic level of distance. I think it's important to find those and then think to yourself, what are your signatures? You know, I almost feel like though, like, I mean, I I do think that that would be effective for sure, but I almost feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm just not very secure in my work and that's why. But, like, I feel like if somebody came up to me and was like, hey, Kristen, you do this one thing a lot, I'd be like, oh, shit, I should probably stop doing that one thing. You're on to me. I've got to change it up now. (laughs) Like, I feel like if somebody, like, said, yeah, like, Kristen does that a lot, I'd be like, well, damn, i got to quit doing that. Oh, fuck me. (laughs) I'm screwed. You're right. I am a hack. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. You know. No, I'm just saying. I feel like that's how I would feel. <laughs> well, I think it's safer for you to notice it before somebody else does, and then tells you about it. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> Damn it! You know, you've used a doll in two out of two of the films that we've made together. Now, well, it's easier than getting other things. Oh, I mean, we could get a baby. <laughs> We'll let that sit in silence. You don't want to laugh at it? Fuck it. Sounds like we're kidnapping and murdering a child via coldness. <laughs> what do you think about opening shots? Where do you stand on opening shots? Because I've got two more little readings that I want to do as far as like opening lines. But what do you... I mean, I, I think... Are you engaged with the opening shot? Like hyper focus i want to see what the first five minutes are i don't think necessarily the literal first like literal first opening shot necessarily has to be the most interesting but But it can make and break a movie like we've watched several where we're like five minutes in fuck this that's where i'm like i do think that matters because i mean um for a movie usually each individual scene is only a couple of seconds long like a minute long single shot is pretty outrageous and i mean it has been done before but you only hold an individual shot for a couple of seconds at most and um I don't think necessarily the first shot has to be the most engaging, but I think if, um, yeah, the first few minutes doesn't pull you in, you're... Losing your audience second yeah, by like second. It's, yeah, like you're starting, you know, from like a hole you're having to dig yourself out of at that point. So I think if um, you don't find a way to immediately grab the attention, you're 
putting yourself at a disadvantage for sure. Do you have a favorite opener? Ever? Ooh. I wasn't ready for that. I know. I'm so smart. Mine? My, my latest short film? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is a brilliant <laughs> opening shot. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I'd have to think about that. I think my favorite opening, if I had to answer the, my own question, like right off the top of my head. Oh, you knew you were going to ask it, though. That's I, not fair. I, I didn't know I was going to ask it. I just knew that I eventually wanted to talk about opening lines and books. And now I'm thinking, what is my favorite opening shot? And I think it is The Godfather. You know, bonus era, bonus era. <laughs> what have I done? What have I done? You know, uh, It's not actually that. The opening line is the, the immigrant talking to Don Corleone. Is like talking about how they've raped and beat up his daughter. Like, I come to America, I think is the, the opening line. Um, but no, I think that's my favorite yeah. opening shot. The calmness kind of establishes Corleone as the... He's not like running down the street firing a gun. He's sitting in a chair having a conversation with a man. And there's so much tension in that opening scene. That's broken by children running into the room. <laughs> I think I need a palate cleanser. We've watched so many Two Star Tuesdays. I can't think of a single opening to an actual good film right now. <laughs> you want to get hammered and watch The Godfather? Because we can do that. Oh. <laughs> Might have to. Yeah, I can't think of a single opening to an actually good film right now. <laughs> wow, we've been watching too many Two Stars. Oh, God. Oh. Zombievers, obviously, is my favorite opening ever. Yeah, fucking... <laughs> Was it Chris D'Elia and Bill no, Burr? No, that was, uh... Fuck, fucking the singer. Shit, what's his name? J- Adam Sandler. No. Shoot. It was a famous singer. Yeah. I can't think of his name, though. But it's yeah, gone. it was Bill Burr. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly the best. Well, I didn't mean ever. to jump you with a difficult question. I just, I, I thought maybe, you, you know, you had a few that you, you, you're like, I love the way that movie starts. Because I've got a few where I love the way the mo- the book begins. Not what I, that's what I was kind of like segueing us over towards. So I've got two books uh, in front of me now that I've put down, the brilliant Cormac McCarthy, because I can only read him to you guys so many times before you either agree to go buy this old man's westerns and say that he's the greatest thing that's happened to American literature in the past 85 fucking years. Um, and those two books that I have remaining are two of my favorite books. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson, which is just goddamn incredible. If you've not read it and you've only seen the movie, again, you've done yourself a disservice. Johnny Depp is brilliant. Hunter did it for real. <laughs> and Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, which is not my favorite book, but is my favorite story. Because it scared me in film version as a child, and it scared me as an adult when I read the novel. I was sitting outside three o'clock in the morning in the ghetto with my, you know, doing my security gig, and we didn't have a toilet, so you had to like walk off into like this little wood line and like piss in the trees if you had to go take a leak during your twelve-hour shift. And three o'clock in the morning, I finished the last page of Pet Cemetery, and then I'm looking at the woods and going. I think I'm pissed on my truck's tire. Like, I'm not going in the woods as an armed veteran of the Air Force. You know? I'm not going into those woods. I'm not getting, I'm not having zero parts of Lewis Creed's, you know, whole situation. 
So I've got these two books, and I think that they're hardcore different. You know, the the writers are very different styles. Hunter's more of a or was more of a journalist. Uh, King is a, a slow boil until you find yourself lost in the chaos of what the fuck is going on. And I thought I'd read the opening lines to both. The opening line to Fear and Loathing, of course, is a classic. It's the same opening line that is used in the film, which is why I picked this book, because I'm a creative genius. <laughs> so this is uh, the very first sentence of Fear and Loathing. Any copy. <laughs> we were somewhere around Barstow, the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold. That is a solid opener. <laughs> That whole first paragraph. I remember saying something like, I feel a bit lightheaded. Maybe you should drive. And suddenly there was a terrible roar all around us, and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats, all swooping and screeching and diving around the car, which was going about 100 miles an hour with the top down to Las Vegas. And a voice was screaming, Holy Jesus, what are these goddamn animals? (laughs) Jumps you right in. That's opening shot. Boom. Welcome to the world. This is where we are. That first sentence. You read that first paragraph, you're reading the rest of the novel. So if you're out there and you're reading read a book... the novel or watch the book. You, <laughs> or watch I, the movie. I wouldn't advise watching the book. It doesn't move much. There's not a lot going on. I mean, it's a cool picture, but it's just going to stay that way. It's like, this is how I take in literature. I just stare at the cover of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, A Savage it. Journey to the Heart of the American Dream. Just going to absorb it, osmosis that shit. But take that line, okay? So uh, the opening line, once again, we were somewhere around Barstow at the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. Dives you into fear and loathing. Now, those of you that are familiar with Pet Cemetery, I, I, I don't owe you any spoilers. They've remade it at this point. It came out in the 70s. It's fucking incredible. Um, you know the chaos that is Pet Cemetery. Like... Very few things are different in the novel than happened on the film. It just you get a lot more detail in the novel than you get in the film, and the book's better. Hmm. Um, but this is the opening line for something as chaotic and frightening as Pet Cemetery. Lewis Creed, who had lost his father at three, and who had never known a grandfather, never expected to find a father as he entered his middle age, but. That is exactly what happened, although he called this man a friend, as a grown man must do when he finds the man who should have been his father relatively late in life. Well, that's sad. But it sets up (coughs) the trilogy that becomes the establishing order for the entire novel, because in that one sentence, you get Lewis, you get Gage, his son, and you get, fuck, I forgot the guy's name. I can the, 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 the neighbor actor. across the mm-hmm. street. I can know, picture don't you. go down there. Shoot, what is this? Don't name? bury him in that old pet cemetery. But you get like this heavy, poetic, and just because I did it with the other, I'll finish the opening paragraph. He met this man on the evening. He and his wife and his two children moved into the big white frame house in Ludlow. Winston Churchill moved in with them. Church was his daughter, Eileen's cat. What is that? Strong opening sentence, though. That's sad. Introduces all of your characters. Tells you that Lewis never knew his dad. 
is a dad and is finding a father across the way, introduces the cat, introduces the wife. We I have like how they Winston. say Winston Churchill moved in with them, though, and then yeah. they established that <laughs> church is a cat. Well, that's why Winston is Winston and not church. People are like, well, he's church in the movie. And it's like, well, he's Winston Churchill in the book. So I have Winston Churchill as well. Uh, he's definitely more of a Winston than a church. He's a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but those are just two examples of like how one opens what I would believed to be on different levels, but both very chaotic uh, works of art. I do. The opening line. I could do the opening off of the Cormac McCarthy book. I don't want to, you can. Um, I don't want to I didn't toot. even look at it yet. <laughs> I don't want to toot my own horn though, but I do feel like, or I guess toot your horn, really. Um, toot my horn. <laughs> I do feel like the shorts that we've done have been pretty successful about that. Like the opening of the dolls, even though we had to rewrite it like last minute, was still kind of a tense opening. The original was so much more tense. <laughs> <laughs> and then this uh, new one is a pretty tense opening too. It, so Fucking brilliant. Like, yeah. I'm not I'm not going to say there weren't moments, um, or there may not be moments in this one that, you know, kind of drag a little bit, but uh, I think for the most part it gets right in there at the start, and, uh, you know, I, I think we're doing all right about ramping the tension early. We're doing incredible. And just because I got it open, uh, this is the opening sentence to The Crossing by McCarthy. When they came south out of Grant County, Boyd was not much more than a baby, and the newly formed county they'd named Hidalgo was itself little older than the child. Not quite as interesting, but I don't dislike it. Yeah, very Western. Mm-hmm. But no, you've done a brilliant job working on this intro, um, or working on the entire film, well, but the intro it. to the <laughs> film. Do what? I said, well, you wrote it. Yeah, but that's easy. Like, <laughs> I didn't need a camera. <laughs> I just that's had a pen. True. Um, Met plenty of quote unquote writers before that are working on nothing. Yeah, no, it's most of them. That's <laughs> why I'm going to be successful one day because most people just tap out. They're like, "I got my degree. Who wants to hire me?" And it's like, "What have you written?" And it's like, "Nothing in the past fifteen years." All right, well, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but no, I. I, I the introduction's important. I've got a few more things here. Um, my favorite thing is trying to find, or my favorite thing as of late, um, is trying to find what identifies the character as the other. Um, like, why are we paying attention to your story? You know, what's what makes you so different? Mm -hmm. You know. Um, and the greatest example of that, as of late, is our last two-star Tuesday. <laughs> the boy in the bubble. Yeah. Survivor. <laughs> the man who steals the plane. You know. Um, Hunter Thompson. The man on LSD. Uh, Pet Cemetery. What is What makes him the outsider? Yeah. His kid gets run over by a fucking tractor trailer. Yeah. Joker. He's the scrawny kid who still yeah. lives at home with mom. Joker's the scrawny kid. Desperately wants to make people laugh. No country. He's the man who found the money. What What makes your character interesting? And try to identify that in both films and in uh, novels as you're reading or watching those. And those will teach you how to make your character the other. Because it's easy to write bland characters where everybody kind of has the same voice. 
Um, but those are not going to be worth putting your time or attention, you know, into. Stephen King does really well in it by establishing this group of outsiders. They might even call themselves the outsiders, if I remember correctly. Uh, like their little gang of kids mm-hmm. that are getting bullied. He establishes all of them as the other and then introduces Pennywise to them and nobody else. <laughs> Specifically the children, right? In the yeah. town that's yeah. in, in part one. And then they grow up and Is they're it still, still the... Oh, yeah. I thought it was just, he just bugged no, the children. there's them and then they defeat Pennywise by all having sex with the child gang rape scene. <laughs> And then there's part two, which is them as adults. Some of them are dead. Some of them are still alive. Grappling with the gang rape. That grap- She <laughs> is, for sure. Beverly has a lot of problems because it's... It, if, if you didn't pick up on it, is uh, trauma. Trauma. That's what it is. That's what Pennywise is. He is what you are afraid of. If you are afraid of spiders as a child, you will be afraid of gang rape as an adult. <laughs> But I think about uh, that's all the time we have, unless you've got something that we didn't get. No, we talked about all my notes already. I've, I've only missed one note, and it's not that important. We might dive into it in a future episode. But I've promised my girlfriend chicken parmesan, and chicken parmesan she shall have. <laughs> because I'm a good boyfriend. You are a good boyfriend. Despite what she says. I did not. <laughs> I'm not cheersing you. <laughs> <laughs> but you can find us over on Twitter at... Nightmare or swing on over there to the Instagram and show pictures of whatever you're reading or whatever you're watching tonight. Tag us in it. We want to know. At Nightmare Box Productions. Or go over to Facebook. You can write a longer post over there. They don't have a word limitation or whatever they're doing. <laughs> Facebook.com slash Nightmare Box Productions. Or you can swing on over to YouTube.com slash Kristen Pennington or slash Nightmare Box Productions. And you can watch the dolls and pretty soon by the end of the month is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be able to watch Happy Birthday. <laughs> also, we're announcing that. <laughs> Directed by Kristen Pennington. Written by your boy, Brett Bloom. Yeah, we've got just the last little chunk left to film, but it's... Don't call me a chunk. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, mostly... Don't call me Sally. <laughs> mostly pieced together in a rough right Surely. now. So. so yeah that should be done at the end of the month on Uh, time for once on time for once did i miss anything uh the website the website where you can also watch the dolls and eventually you'll be able to buy my book is the nightmare box top blog yeah go over there Kristen's added this whole section that's um like pictures from what we're doing and it's gonna have like little videos and i'm trying to get a writing list together and a film list together for books that we've read and films that we've watched that we've discussed on here and i I, i'm hoping to be able to come up with like a little like 250 word like paragraph synopsis of why this like all three of these that i've brought up today for you know example and i think that we've also agreed as the short films come out the scripts are going to be released scripts are being released and a blooper reel (laughs) um so that will be on the website as well so I've got a hilarious blooper for this film that I watched no less than ten times. <laughs> it makes me giggle every time. Did we get them all? Yes. You ready to go heal the black lung? Uh, we can try. Yeah, fuck it. I love you. <laughs> I love you. And I love you guys. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>